So Proverbs chapter 4. I think by the end of our study in the book of Proverbs, everyone's going to need a bigger hat. We're going to have all that wisdom and all that knowledge just growing within us. So as we look at Proverbs chapter 4, we're going to see a lot of familiar terminology tonight. And it's so easy to just skip over things because maybe we've read them before. But what does that say about us that we need to be reminded of sometimes the same thing over and over again? And as we go through Proverbs, there will be times when it'll feel like, didn't I just read this? Because he's going to go over some of the same truths. And I believe that's because when you want to emphasize something, you repeat yourself. For example, we just sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so when you emphasize the holiness of God, you say it three times. And it, it helps us to see this is something about God that's very important. And so, uh, you know, the tendency even through teaching through this would be to just skim through chapter 4. In fact, I actually thought about that before I started to study this chapter. And I thought, you know what, maybe we'll just read through chapter 4. We'll focus on chapter 5. But then as I began to dig into chapter 4, I realized, wow, this is a lot of meat that, that I believe God has for us tonight. So let's begin in chapter 4, verse 1. Hear, my children, the instruction of a father, and give attention to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. When I, when I was my father's son, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother. Now, I want to stop there for a minute. You can begin to see that Solomon is already having this, this thought of his youth. You know, as he's speaking to what we would say youth or even young Christians, um, he's recollecting in his mind, he's having that, that vision of his own father, which was King David. And he's going to tell us some things that David, no doubt, taught him. And notice in verse 3, he refers to himself as my father's son. Now, most of us would say, well, that's no big deal. What's, what's the point of this? But in, in Hebrew way of thinking, they weren't so much concerned about biology. It wasn't that he had his father David biologically as his father and that he was biologically his son. Rather, uh, uh, in Hebrew thinking, it was, he was a son because of obedience. He was a son because of obedience. And the greatest example that we see who fulfilled total obedience was Jesus Christ. And so he, only Jesus could truly say that the Father was pleased with him because he lived a life that was completely obedient to the Father. He's the only person ever to live to whom the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And we see Jesus obeying the Father constantly all throughout the Scripture, uh, even to the point of death we saw in the book of Philippians, right? The death of the cross. He was so obedient to his heavenly Father. And so he already draws attention to his relationship with his earthly father, David, here. And in verse 4, it says, He also taught me and said to me, Let your heart retain my words, keep my commands, and live. And so by keeping his words in his heart, it would mean that, that, that Solomon would want to look at the word of God daily. 
that he would constantly need to keep the commands of God at the forefront of his mind each and every day. And in verse 5, this is again actually David speaking now. He's recollecting David speaking to him when he was a youth. Notice what David says in verse 5. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Does this sound familiar? As we've been studying the book of Proverbs, get wisdom, get understanding. How many times have we already read those two words, wisdom and understanding, as we've gone through this? And I believe that this is because David's teaching and his counsel had tremendous impact on Solomon's life. If you recall, when Solomon became king and God asked him, what do you want? What can I give you? Here's a blank check. The one thing Solomon asked for was wisdom. And now we see that wasn't just something that happened in an isolated moment. It wasn't like Solomon was just waking up one day and thought, you know what? (laughs) This is a big responsibility. Let me ask for wisdom. This is something that his father David instilled within him. And as he watched, I'll bet, as a young boy growing up, seeing his father, seeing all the weight of the kingdom upon David's shoulders, there's no doubt that not only did David teach him the need for wisdom, but he watched his father. No doubt, pray. Think of the Psalms. The heartfelt Psalms that we read that minister to our hearts. Perhaps David, as a youth, got to watch his father pen. Not just the physical psalm, but the the literal life psalm. He watched his father live out those things. He saw the grief on his father's heart. He maybe saw his father shut the door, go before the Lord in prayer, and come out a different man. And so David's instruction at this point, it's, it's it's something that is already part of Solomon. And now he's trying to relay it to us, to God's children. And remember that wisdom is knowledge used skillfully or knowledge applied. And so we want to read our Bibles in a way that impacts our life, right? We're not here tonight just because we want more head knowledge, because we want more study. We, we want to study the word so that we can apply it to our life. And so we need to get wisdom, get understanding, not to forget it or turn away from it from the words of my mouth. And do not forsake her, and she will preserve you. Again, we see David was the one who personified wisdom, right? We thought it was Solomon who did this, but actually it was his father who began to teach him this. Love her, and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. You know, if you can't, don't just get wisdom. Make sure you get understanding on top of that. Exalt her and she will promote you. She will bring you honor when you embrace her. She will place on your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory. She will deliver you. So very similar language to what we've already looked at. The benefits of wisdom, the benefits of understanding. But again, if you were to bracket this, you would actually see that this is mostly David's words from verses 4 through 9. And so we see the, the, the influence of a father, of an earthly father. And those of us who are fathers, those of us who are parents, those of us who serve in the children's ministry, never underestimate the impact you can have on those young ones' minds and hearts for the Lord. And we may not always see the impact right away. Sometimes it's just sowing seed. 
You know, in certain ministries, especially in addiction kind of ministries, sometimes you feel like you're only sowing seeds. Uh, and sometimes you don't feel like you're ever going to see much fruit. But the bottom line is that God's word will not return to him void. And he uses us to distribute that word, whether we're parents, neighbors, relatives. As you share the word of God, it will impact people's lives. And we see Solomon is an example of that. Now we move on in verse 10. Hear my son. Now this is Solomon again speaking. He's not recollecting David's words anymore. Hear my son. And receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in right paths. And when you walk, your steps will not be hindered. And when you run, you will not stumble. What we see here is God's desire for us to run. And that speaks of our practical lifestyle. He wants us to live a practical lifestyle and not stumble. And today I think about our society. Isn't it true that society at large, especially as I think of men, we're tripping over our own feet. We don't know how to even walk today without stumbling. And it's almost as if you turn on the TV or you see people, you hear people out on the streets, and you just see everyone stumbling over themselves, and then we're all applauding one another in our stumbling. It's as if it's a good thing that people fall. And I think of the impact, as we think of this in context of fatherless homes, of addiction, of abuse of all kinds, and the cycles that we see families and individuals from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. We see the impact of just stumbling of just falling over ourselves, not knowing how to live a godly Christian life. And as a parent, and I'll speak to parents for a second, isn't it, isn't it our heart's cry that our children would not stumble in the places that we've stumbled? That we would see our children walk and run in those areas that we've ourselves stumbled? You know, it's our heart's cry. And here the, the, the emphasis is on the youth, that, that they would be active in their listening, that they would listen to the counsel that God wants to give. And it's not just physical youth. You realize that there's also spiritual youth. When you become a Christian, you are a, you're a child of God, but you're also a newborn babe in Christ. And you need to grow and learn. That's why we want to be in the Word of God. And so it's not just he, a young kid heeding the counsel of an earthly father. It's also a new believer heeding the counsel of spiritual fathers. You know, one of the best ways that you can grow as a believer is to surround yourself with people who are more mature than you. One of the faults, especially of the youth today, is that we tend to surround ourselves with people who are just like us. In fact, you'll see sometimes churches who have two services, one traditional worship, old school worship, and one contemporary worship. But what does that do? That separates your seasoned saints from your younger saints. Think of the, what's missing there, the wisdom, the life lessons. And I, I look at my life and I think, of course, besides being in the Word of God myself, I think, how has God developed me as a, as a child of God? And I think of the godly men, the older men who've walked the walk of faith before me, who he's put in my life, who I not only was taught the Word of God from, but I watched them. 
I watched them live it out. I saw wisdom personified in the people that God has placed in my life. Isn't that a beautiful thing? When you see not just someone speaking the word, but living the word. And you get to say, so that's what it looks like. And none of us are perfect. I think of the different people that God's placed and, you know, every one of them kind of inputted something different. This man, I said, I want the love that this man has for people. I see the passion that he has to love people genuinely with the love of Christ. This man loves the word of God. Oh, Lord, I want to love the word of God like this man. This man knows how to treat his wife. Lord, I want to follow after this man. I want to follow his heart in being a servant leader in his household. This man knows how to suffer. That's a man who you want to follow. But you know what I've learned? I want a man who understands grace. And when you find a man or a woman, I'm speaking in general terms now. Women should find women. Men should find men. But find people who exemplify this wisdom that is personified in a life given over to the Word of God, a life given over to the things of God, that when you allow people to pour into you, you will grow. And that's the beauty of a fellowship of believers. You know, we can, we can listen to sermons. We can, today, you don't even have to step foot in a church. You can turn on the TV, you can get on your iPhone or your iPad, and you can watch a church service from the comfort of your living room. But you miss the fellowship. You miss the edification of the saints. You miss the giftings that are within the body of Christ that God uses to build up his body into the, the person of Jesus Christ collectively. And so let us find these fathers, these mothers, if you will, in the faith, these more mature saints who have gone before us and heed their counsel. Why? So that we can run and not stumble. And that's God's desire for every one of his children, as it is our desire for our earthly children. Verse 13 now, he's going to continue with this thought. Take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. When it says here about taking firm hold of instruction, that word instruction, if you recall, means discipline. And it was used of athletes who constantly regulate themselves, their diet, their exercise, their training, their sleep. And the idea is by limiting themselves, they're able to run fast without stumbling. And so there is discipline here. There is instruction. He's encouraging us, take a firm hold of it. Don't let it go. Because it often flees us if we don't pay attention to it. Keep her, for she is your life. Think of an undisciplined life and how reckless that can be. How you can take something that is good and you can just lose it all of a sudden without this kind of instruction in our life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Now he's starting a new thought here. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Now he reintroduces to us this principle of the path. And the idea is that the path determines who we become and what we do. Remember we said that it's not our intention that matters. It's the path that we're on. I can desire to go to Florida and get on I-95 North. No matter what my intention is, I will never get there. 
I can have the best of intentions. I can even be praising the Lord while I'm driving. But I'm not going to get to Florida unless I go the whole way around the globe and get there. So the idea is whatever path we are on determines who we become and what we do. And notice the language that he used here. Do not, speaking of the wicked path, he says, do not enter, avoid, do not travel, and turn away. In case we missed it the first time. Completely avoid the path of the wicked is what he's getting at here. We do not, as Christians, need to be wise in the way of evil, right? We don't have to see how close we can get to the edge without falling off. That it's, a, it's wisdom as Christians to avoid evil completely. We should never look at Scripture and say, Well, I know that I can't do this, but how close to this can I go until I call it this? Whatever that this is for us. And isn't that our nature sometimes? We, we want to push the envelope. We want to see how far we can get with whatever it is that our hearts and our flesh craves. And I remember as a new believer, I, I used to justify everything under the sun. You know, I, I even remember kind of justify getting drunk as a new believer, as crazy as that sounds. Because I still wanted it. And my heart still craved after those things that I knew were wrong. But as we walk with the Lord, we realize that those things leave scars, don't they? Even as Christians, you cannot play with fire and not get burnt. That the sin that we sometimes mess around with and play with, it will end up biting us. It will end up destroying our life, even as a saint, even as a Christian. In fact, sometimes the, the implications are, are much worse because we have a father, remember, who disciplines us in our sin. And so we have to deal with, as Christians, not only do we have to still deal with consequences of sin, but now we have a father who's going to chasten us. And we have an enemy, by the way, who wants to destroy us. We're free from the enemy as Christians, but when we give in to sin and when we open the door for him, he'll come rushing in if we let him. Now it's our choice as believers. Before we were saved, we had no choice. We were just slaves of the devil. But after we become Christians, now it's our choice. And if we open that door to sin, we will get burnt. There will be scars. And as believers, think about it. Even though Jesus Christ has cleansed us and washed us, he's dealt with our sin on the cross, we still have to deal with some of those scars that we had even before we were saved, right? Some scars that we committed before Christ even, we're still dealing with the effects of that now, even to this day. And we may still deal with the effects of sin until we're out of this body. And so the idea again is when you see that path of sin, whatever that path is, every one of us struggle with different paths of sin. So you shouldn't look at your brother and say, oh, I can't believe you went down that path again, just because that's not something that you struggle with. We all have a path that we struggle with. And the wisdom here is don't even get on the path. Avoid it. Run away from sin when you can. Don't get on the path. Why? Because the path determines what you do, not your intents. You get on the path, and that path always has the same destination. It destroys everything good in our life. You know, Sin destroys. So when God says no, it's not because he doesn't love us, right? It's because he wants to protect us. He wants to keep us from horrible things happening in our lives, unnecessary things. 
Notice also this, these wicked people who are on this path that we don't want to be on. In verse 16, they do not sleep unless they have done evil. And their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. You know, it's no fun to sin alone. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. They can't even sleep or rest without doing something wicked. One commentator said, wickedness has become their necessary nutrient. That ultimately, when you get a group of people who have given over to the path, this is what it does to you. You become like that sin that the path is on. So if it's a self-centered path, you become self-centered. And guess what? When you're self-centered, you start ripping people off. When people take a path of drugs and alcohol, when, when someone first uses that substance, they want to use that substance to get something from it, right? There's a payoff. There's something that this substance does for me. It makes me feel good. It makes me forget. The problem, though, is once you enter that path, the destination of that path is not what you first signed up for. Because I've never met someone who said, boy, I sure hope one day I'm addicted to dope. I sure hope one day I'm addicted to alcohol or to meth or whatever that substance is. I sure hope one day it's going to destroy everything good in my life, you know, and I'm going to lose everything, including my health, my marriage, my family, respect, my name. But that's where that path leads, right? And no matter how we may desire to use that substance, that substance ends up using us. And that's, again, the principle of the path. And not only does it use us, but then all of a sudden it's no fun to use alone, so I'm going to now bring in other people into this path. And it's just a, we see our, our city here, it's just a disaster. And it all began with this simple path, the way of the wicked. And that, notice though the contrast in verse 18. The path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. Notice that contrast with the path of the wicked. The path of goodness. And when it says it's like the sun shining or the shining sun, it implies there's no clouds. There's not even a shadow in this kind of path when we follow the Lord's word. And I love what H.A. Ironside said. He said the captain of a ship, he likened this path to the captain of a ship. He does not need to know every rock or reef. Rather, he needs to know where the safe channel is. As Christians, he, the analogy is we don't have to understand sin from a practical perspective. We don't have to sin so that we can relate to sinners. You'll see some Christians thinking that somehow in order for us to relate to the world, we have to become like the world. No, we can avoid the pain. We can avoid the evil. We can avoid the sin. But we better know where the safe channel is. And we as Christians know our safe channel is found in Jesus Christ. Amen? We fix our eyes on him. We set our minds, our affections, our hearts on him because there's no greater path. And I would not trade my relationship, my walk with Jesus Christ for anything. When you understand the beauty of the path of Christ, when you understand the joy of knowing him, you walk with him on a daily basis. It's a relationship. And he, not only do you walk with him, he walks with you. And he goes through the path with you, no matter where your path may lead. Because we know that this path, though it is a path with the shining of the sun, we realize that on this side of eternity, that path will still have difficulties. 
That path will not only have mountaintops, but it will have valleys. But the joy is the fact that Jesus Christ walks with us no matter where our path leads us when we walk according to his word here. Again, verse 19 now, he's going back though to this path of the wicked. The way of the wicked is like darkness. Notice that contrast between the way of the just, which is like the shining sun, the way of the wicked. It is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. And so the wicked are walking literally in darkness. They don't know the things that are going to cause them to stumble. They've been blinded by their sin, blinded by the devil. And weren't all of us in that condition before Christ? We didn't know what we were doing. We thought we were free. And we were slaves to our own desires. We were slaves to sin. We were bound. We were blinded. And we didn't even know our own condition. We were there tripping over ourselves, applauding ourselves, not even realizing that the path we were on was just utter darkness. There was no light. And this path, this is the humbling thing about this path. This path has an eternal destination. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said, and you've noticed probably in this book of Proverbs, I've quoted Lewis quite a bit. I don't look at Lewis as a theologian. In fact, I don't agree with all of his theology, but I do look at him as a man who God used of wisdom. And I think there's a corollary between a book of wisdom and many of the ways C.S. Lewis was able to take a truth and, and make it edible for, for a multitude of people. Listen to what he said here. He said, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. And this must either be true or false. Now there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if we were only going to live, say, 70 years. But which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse. So gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct or technical term that it would be, that would be used. The idea is that to be on a path of darkness has an eternal destination. Eternal destination. That today's sorrow and sadness will become a weeping and gnashing of teeth. Today's spiritual darkness will be utter darkness. Today's regret will be an eternity without any kind of hope. Can you imagine that? How horrible hell will be when there is no hope of ever, 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 ever changing your situation. It is a, an eternal regret, an eternal remorse without any hope of comfort. What burns on this path will be a fire that is never quenched. And in the book of Revelation, we see at the very end of the book of Revelation, as you see the heavenly, you know, New Jerusalem coming down as a bride prepared. And it's describing this beautiful uh, creation of God that we're going to dwell in for eternity. It says, outside the New Jerusalem are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. It's interesting that the people are identified by the sin that they loved here on earth. That they became that sin, if you will. That became their identity. 
and it ultimately led them to a place that was outside the kingdom of God. That the path that we're on has eternal significance is the point here. If someone's on a path of darkness, it's an eternal path. And how this truth should cause us to have our hearts break, to pray for the lost. You know, sometimes I've been in churches when, when someone mentions hell and you get all this like happy response by believers that the pastor is talking about hell. It's like we need to speak about hell. It's true. Jesus spoke a lot about it. But it should break our hearts. And I realized, but by the grace of God, I was on that path. You were on that path unless Jesus came down and, and literally helped us to see our true condition. That the Spirit of God spoke life into us. That he opened our eyes to see that we were heading in a path that leads to destruction. And God has a different way, amen? He has a better way. He has a good way, a path of light, a path where there are no shadows. You don't have to turn around wondering if someone's behind you. Those of us who've lived in cities, you understand that dynamic. You have to look around your shoulder all the time because someone might be lurking in the shadows around the corner. Someone might jump you. There's none of that in the path of God. It's light. It's pure light. There's no hiding. There's freedom, right? Because when there's pure light, there's freedom in the light. We're afraid of the light because of our sin at times. We run from the light, but we forget that it, it's, God is light. And when we're in the light, we're in his presence. There's freedom in his presence. There's goodness in his presence. He wants goodness for us and for our loved ones. And he didn't come into the world to condemn the world. But that, that through him we may have life. We may walk this path of light. It's his desire for us as believers and for all the world. For God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. A world that is so caught up in this darkness. And so the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Like Jesus said on the cross, Lord forgive them, Father forgive them. They know not what they do. They don't even know what's happening in their life. And that's why as believers, it's so important for us to shed the light of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's why it's important for us to speak the word of God because his word is like light. The gospel is like light coming down in a very dark world and it's so beautiful. We have good news that we possess. We need to share that good news with those who are walking in that path. My son, therefore, thinking of the eternal implications of this, my son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your hearts, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. And here we've talked about this before, the heart, just like the physical heart is the center of our bodies, our spiritual heart is the center of all that we are and do. It's from that heart that everything else flows out from our life. And when he says to keep your heart, that word keep means standing guard. It literally could be translated above everything. Watch, guard your heart. And it pictures an army setting up an encampment around our hearts. Why? Because the most important thing to guard or restrain is our heart. You know, 
The prophet Jeremiah said something about the heart. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then he goes on to answer that question. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. And this is a terrifying thing left to ourselves, right? Did you ever hear someone say, well, the Lord knows my heart? You know, usually you say that in a way to justify yourself, a way to encourage yourself in something, even when someone may be coming against you. For me, that's a terrifying statement at times. I don't even want to think about it. The Lord knows the heart. He tests the heart. And that's why David would cry out in the Psalms, Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God. And that's why Solomon at the dedica dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8 said, he, he prayed that God would incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments. Solomon understood, Lord, unless you change this heart that is so gravitated towards that dark path, Unless you change me from within, Lord, unless you give us a desire for your commandments, you change my heart towards your word, Lord, I'm going to go down that path every time. I may make resolutions. I may make promises. I may promise my family, my loved ones, myself, even God himself. But by and large, every single time, unless this heart changes, I will go back to that path. As a dog returns to its vomit, that's where I'm going to go. Unless, Lord, you change my heart. Unless you change from within me my desires. I need a heart transplant, Lord. I need you to change me from the inside out. And how does God do this? Well, we know he wants to give us a heart transplant. Because when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, it says he takes out our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. He gives us a new heart, a new nature. He allows his spirit to dwell in us, to begin to desire new things, good things, things that align with his word. Isn't that the experience of every born-again Christian? At one point, you were on the path that leads to darkness. You were in darkness. You didn't even know you were in darkness. And then all of a sudden, you turn to Christ, and, and the floodgates open, and your heart just is changed, and you, you love good things, pure things. Even in the midst of your sin that he's bringing you out of, you desire godliness. You desire holiness. Things that before, they were just words on a page that maybe you even sang in church growing up, but you had no idea what they were and what they meant. But when Christ became real to you and you were born again of the Spirit of God, you desired these things. They were sweet to you. And you did not love the path of darkness anymore. You may find yourself in that path at times. Oh, but you went out of that path because you've experienced the light. You've experienced the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the peace of God. Every blessing that God has, now you want because you understand that it's so much greater than that path that God has brought you out of. Isn't that a sign that you're born again? See, if I don't desire that, there's warning signs. If I love the path of darkness still and have no desire to get out of it, I can call myself whatever I want to call myself. But I need a heart transplant. I need God to change me from within. I need new desires. And it's a process, right? I mean, this is a lifelong process. We will be in this process till we get our glorified bodies. No one's arrived here, at least I don't think. Maybe you have. 
I can't speak for you, I can only speak for myself. I know I've definitely not arrived when it comes to this. I am in this process. But we thank the Lord we're not who we used to be, even though we're maybe not who we want to be at this point. God's changing us. He's changing us from within. But we have to remember, keep your heart with all diligence. Guard it with everything you have, for out of it spring the issues of life. Now the question I want to ask us, as a Christian, how can I know the state of my heart? Right? God's given you a new heart. He's given you new desires. You don't desire the old things anymore, or at least there's a change taking place. But how can I know the state of my heart as it is presently? The answer we're going to see here is we need to look at our actions. Okay? Because even today, our hearts can still deceive us at times. Sometimes our heart condemns us and we realize God's greater than our hearts. And sometimes we have a false condemnation even when God says we're not condemned, right? So, so our hearts can still sometimes deceive us, but we have to look at our actions sometimes to understand what the current state of, of our heart is. Notice in verse 24, the first thing he wants us to do is this, put away from you a deceitful mouth and put away perverse lips far from you. And so the mouth or the lips represent the words that we speak to others, which ultimately reveals the state of our heart. Remember, Jesus himself said, out of the abundance or the overflow of our hearts, the mouth speaks. Okay. For example, and I know I'm touching a lot. I don't know why, but I'm touching a lot right now. Just addiction is so heavy on my heart as I see this city, as I see things crumbling. In fact, my wife and I were saying, man, if, if you could take away addiction... Imagine what the city of Cumberland would be like today. But have you ever seen someone who, when they get a little bit of alcohol in them, all of a sudden, they become an angry drunk? Okay. The lips get loose. Well, the idea is that person's always been angry in their heart. But that alcohol, it, you, don't have that, it, 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 you don't have that check anymore. And what's in the heart, the alcohol loosens the lips, and all of a sudden, boom, and it's out there for everyone to know and to hear and to think. And so Jesus himself said, out of this overflow of our hearts, our mouth speaks. And so if I speak lies, then my heart is deceitful. And no doubt I'm walking in the shoes of the devil who is the father or the originator of lies. And some people just like to lie, right? I mean, we all have been tempted to lie. And if we deny that, then we're lying. Um, we, we all, if, if we were judged by the Lord for what's come out of this mouth, would be found guilty. In fact, Isaiah himself, when he was in the presence of God, the first thing he acknowledged was, Lord, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So if God was to look at what's come out of this mouth, the, the junk that's come out of here, none of us would be faultless. But I, I've also seen people who just like to lie. You know, they're not in a jam. They're not in a spot where if they lie, it looks better for themselves. It's just like we lie for the sake of lying. And it's a warning here to put these things away. Those are things of our old nature as believers. In fact, because we're in Christ, we can actually put those things off as believers and put on truth. We can speak the truth. I remember one of the last times I, I really... <laughs> really, really badly cursed. I was at a Penn State football game. I was saved for about two years. I've cursed since then. I don't want to try to sound super spiritual, but this was really bad. And I'll never forget as a new believer, I was trying, I was having Bible studies with friends of mine. None of them were Christians. 
and I'm there at the Penn State football game in the student section, and the ref made a call that I perceived to be not a very good call. And out of this mouth just came garbage. And I'll never forget the Spirit's conviction at that moment as I'm standing there next to a guy I'm having Bible studies with, trying to, trying to witness to him and lead him to the Lord. And here I am cursing the ref out. And it was just one of those moments when the Lord pointed to me and said, Luke, you need to put away these things. You need to, you need to stop with the deceitful mouth or the perverse lips. That we need to be careful what our mouth, what comes out of this mouth. James talks a lot about that, right? The tongue. How we bless God with it, and then if we curse our brother who's made in the image of God, it just doesn't work. It, it, it shouldn't be that way. We, there should be good things coming out of this thing. But ultimately, what it points back to is not so much the tongue or even the mouth. It points back to our heart. That's the bigger issue here that he wants to get us to see. And so when I'm born again, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, will transform me. And I'll desire to speak truth. Why? Because God always speaks truth. Because God is not a man that he should lie. And I want to become like my Lord. I want to become like my Savior, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Verse 25 now, now that we've put away the, the perverse lips and everything else. Let your eyes look straight ahead, and your eyelids look right before you. Okay, so the next thing that he points out here is the eye, right? What we look at, it reveals our heart and determines where our heart will go also. It's a cycle that will begin to take place. Remember what Jesus said, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, meaning it's clean, it's clear, it's healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? That somehow the eye is this portal to our, our, our heart, our soul. And what we take in through these eyes affects us internally. It affects our heart. It affects our passions. It affects our affections, our ability to love, right? If we fill these things with things that are filthy and not pure, our hearts become filthy, and everything that we see then becomes filthy. It's this cycle that takes place, that the things that we use these eyes for. John Owen said this, he was a, a, a Puritan pastor. He said this about sin, and I think, thinking about the eye, he said, sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might have its own course, it would go to the utmost sin of its kind. Let me give you an example. He said this, every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. And he went on to say this, might, it, might this sin grow its own head? It is like the grave that is never satisfied. That who here has realized that when it comes to these eyes, when it comes to the things that we see, that we put before us, who here has realized that the eye is never satisfied with seeing? That was actually Solomon who said that. That the eye is never satisfied with seeing. And so we need to set our eyes on something 
that is greater than those things that capture our hearts and our minds. You know, when it says to let your eyes look straight ahead, it means to set your eyes on something or in a certain direction in order to see something. So the first thing that we need to do is turn our eyes away from worthless things, right? Especially as men, we, as men, we are just driven by these things we call eyes. We, we, we're very eye sensitive, you know. And, and we look at something, we desire it, and then there's action. Remember David as he's looking out and he sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof. And we see what, what that glance did. It wasn't so much the first look, it's always that second look that gets us. It's, it's that decision to look the second time. And after you take that second time, ooh, now there'll be a third time. And the motor gets running. And pretty soon now, sin is operating. And it all starts at times with just that glance, just that look. Or you could be thinking about it, if you're in the wrong path, you're going to see those things that you're not meant to see. And it's going to entice and trip us up. And finally, of course, not just turn away from those things that trip us up, no, also to fix our eyes on Jesus, to set our attention, our minds on the things above, not the things below. That we need to make decisions on what we fix our eyes on, both the eyes of our mind as well as our physical eyes. And I heard this, I, I like this quote, as long as people have their gaze fixed on heavenly truth, Satan has no advantage over them. Eve only fell after she looked at the forbidden fruit. Verse 26, ponder the path of your feet. I guess in light of everything we've talked about tonight, ponder the path of your feet, as in weighing it on a scale. Make an evaluation. Am I going in the right direction? Look at my life. Is it heading in the path of light or the path of darkness? Ponder the path of your feet. Let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left and remove your foot from evil. All of life you could think of is a path. And I'm either going towards Jesus Christ or I'm going away from him. And so tonight, perhaps the Spirit of God's encouraging us. Maybe there's areas in our lives we need to repent of. We need to turn back to the Lord. We need to turn back to the right path. You know, and I thank the Lord, isn't it true, that Jesus Christ is the only man to ever walk the perfect path. And that path led him to a cross where he died for us, for all the wrong paths that we've walked. And so he's our living hope. He's the only chance we have to get on the right path. And I would just pray, if you've never made that decision, to follow after Jesus Christ, that you would make that decision tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wisdom that you give us, Lord. Lord, even as I, I think about this message, Father, there's people in our life who are on that path, Lord, that we know leads to destruction, Father. And you know the people that are just heavy on our hearts tonight, Lord. And we just pray for your mercy, Father. We pray for the salvation of our loved ones. We pray that you would open the eyes of the blind, Lord. And that you would reveal your goodness in the gospel of your Son. You would reveal your love, Lord. That you love sinners. And you, we thank you that you rescued us from that path, Lord. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you did not abandon us. You did not leave us to ourselves, Lord. But you reached down and you came lower than any of us have gone, Father, so that you could lift us up. And God, we pray that over our loved ones, our family, our friends. We thank you for your grace, Lord. May you be glorified with our life. In Jesus' name, amen.